Well, good morning, and welcome back, maybe to some of you. Welcome for the first time, others of you. I personally uh, have not been here in a while, and I'm so glad and excited to be back. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I'm the new college guy. Uh, so I have been gone, though, for the past couple of weeks. We had a couple other guest speakers come in, talk about Islam, uh, talk about other things related to culture, and it's so great, though, to be back. And in case you didn't realize this, uh, I, in fact, have been working at Grace for the past uh, about five and a half years. And when I started out on staff at Grace, I've mentioned this before, but I worked in junior high ministry. I did junior high ministry for three years, three glorious dodgeball-filled years uh, with lots of, you know, pain and suffering in the midst, but so much joy, so much joy because I had so many different kids that were so awesome that came from so many different backgrounds that I got to basically experience America uh, just over there in that gym. Like I experienced like all that we have to offer. It was incredible. Uh, We had uh, just lots of kids from lots of different families, lots of different kind of experiences growing up. Uh, One of my favorites was this kid that I had whose name was, I'm going to call Luke. Okay, that wasn't his real name, but I'm going to call him Luke. And he was so awesome because he grew up in what we often kind of call uh, Marka. Okay, so he grew up Basically, by the time he was 12, when I had him in junior high uh, Bible study, he already owned six rifles, all right? So he owned half of his age in rifles because he was living the dream, right? He was living the Merkin dream, all right? So Luke was in my study, and he was so different and so challenging, but so exciting because he would bring in these different perspectives, and he would be talking about this different stuff. And so when we would sit down, and we had this one lesson that was all about praying for people that it was hard for us to love, I knew I knew that Luke would have just an awesome person that he was going to be praying for, right? But we didn't want to let everyone know kind of like who's frustrating in our lives. So as we were going around the table, uh, we would just say the first letter of that person's name. So we started going around the table, you know, I said like, you know, S or you know, J or whatever. And someone would say like R, D, Luke said O, you know, someone else said R, like, you know, whatever. We just like went around the circle. I didn't really think about it. Uh, until we were leaving the room, kind of we prayed and said, we're going to pray for those people during the week. And as we were exiting the room, Luke kind of pulled me aside and was like, hey, hey, you know know who I'm praying for? You know who O was? I was like, who? Obama. (laughs) It's like, all right. (laughs) Like, that's good. You know, it's good to pray for our leaders. It's good to pray for our president. You know, that's a good, actually, I'm surprised that you find him hard to love since you don't know him personally, but you know, that's, that's fine. Uh, and when he told us that, I, I kind of laughed, you know, and my co-leader was with me. We were both kind of laughing. And so my co-leader kind of tapped him on the shoulder and was like, you know, Luke, you know who I'm going to pray for this week? I think I'm going to pray for L, you know, because Luke. <laughs> At which point Luke was like, yeah, you mean liberals? And we were like, <laughs> we said, uh, sure, <laughs> sure, Luke. <laughs> That's exactly what we mean. And the truth is that, man, we see this played out. And I saw it played out so often. If you interact with kids, it's hilarious because they automatically adopt whatever views politically that their parents have, right? They don't, he doesn't know what taxes are. I mean, he doesn't know what things are, like, but he just knows, like he adopts this mentality. And what's sad is that oftentimes we find ourselves in that same mindset. We find ourselves in that same point where we're like, oh man, you know who it's really hard to love? Oh, Obamacare, you know, or whatever. Like we just, we find these things and we get so upset and we look at our, you know, polit- we look at our politicians, we look at our political experts, we look at the people who are act, you know, activists in the political sphere. And when we see them on TV or reading about them, they're just yelling 
and they're so mad. And they're talking about, oh, you know, this, this people over here, like, they don't understand how the world works. They don't understand how America should work. Like, what do, you, what do you mean the website's broken? What do you mean the government's shut down? Like, that doesn't work, right? And you see this yelling, you see this anger, you see this frustration. And what's so sad is that we get caught up in that. When was the last time that you were talking to your friends or complaining to your family about, oh, I can't believe that other political party did that, or I can't believe that you know these other this other interest group said that, or I can't believe that there is this other program that's being put into place. I can't, oh, and we just get so mad, we get so frustrated. But my question to you is: Do you think that's what Christians should do? Do you think that's what Christians are called to do? To yell, to be frustrated and angry, to only watch Fox News because all the rest are the devil, right? Like that's. That's the mentality that we get into, but is that what Christians are called to do? If you honestly stop and think about your words and your actions, do you think that's how Christ calls us to live? I would say no. I would say that we have fallen into this horrible trap. Because the truth is that our government, man, there's going to be frustrations. There's going to be problems. You can find people from any race, background, political party, religious, like, what a, it doesn't matter. Everyone's going to have a complaint. Everyone has a frustration. That's just going to happen. But Christians, man, we're supposed to be different, right? We're, we're called out of this. We can all recognize that our government has faults, right? We all see that. We can all recognize the fact that our government, man, it's broken, It will not be perfect. No government has ever been perfect. In fact, when our government shut down, I loved this. They did this poll, right, where they were just asking Americans. This was like 10 days into the shutdown. They said, hey, you know, well, let's see what you like. They kind of give like likes or dislikes to these different items. What they discovered is that Congress was, in fact, ranked lower than Nickelback, (laughs) which is just sad, right, for both parties involved. That's... That's just so tragic that we had as Congress, these people that lead us, that we elected, that we're supposed to, you know, like, be like, go forth to Washington, Mr. Smith, you know, whatever. Like, we're supposed to be cheering them on. And yet we're like, you know, you know what? I like Nickelback more than you. Like, that's so sad. That is, that is the bottom. Like, that, is, that is as far as you can fall. Because we all see that there are frustrations. We all see that there are problems. But the thing is, is that if you are a Christian, we also can all recognize the fact that we worship the one true God. The one true God who created all things, even government. And if we recognize that fact, if we believe that God in fact created institutionalized government, I think we're going about it in the wrong way. I don't believe that we should be yelling and shouting about our frustrations, going to Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Instead, when we look at our purpose within government, I think it's very, very different. We've been looking at our purpose within culture as a whole, right? All semester we've been talking about kind of culture and what is our role within it. Why does culture matter? Why do we engage? How should we engage within culture? What we've decided kind of over the course of the whole semester is basically we as Christians are called to live apart, to live differently in the way that we create culture. That when we walk into culture, things are going to be broken, But we know to walk into that and to bring God's grace, God's Bible, and this church. And when we bring those things, we create something new and something fresh, something attractive that other people see. And they say, wow, I want want that. 
The only way that we're going to change our culture is to create new culture. And we do that in government. And the best way that we can do that, how do we react, how do we create within government? I'll tell you, we have two big tools, two incredible tools. It is our vote and our voice. But before we get there, before we kind of talk about what does that mean to use our vote and our voice, I want us to kind of take a step back and ask ourselves a broader question of why did God even create government, right? Like, why does government even exist? When we look in the Bible, we find the very earliest mentionings of government is way back, this would maybe surprise you, all the way back in Genesis 9. Genesis 9 is after the flood. God's talking to Noah. One of the first things he tells him is this, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Right after the flood, Noah and his family are kind of hanging out. They're like, wow, the world's so empty and wet. And so they're just kind of hanging out and looking and God tells, gives them a few commands. He's like, look, these are some things that I want for you. I want you to perform these sacrifices. I promise I'm not going to you know, destroy the whole earth like this again. And he also says, look, I'm going to set into place some laws. And this is what I like to call the check yourself before you wreck yourself commandment, right? Because he's saying, look, from here on out, just so we're clear, you can't murder people, right? Like if you murder someone, you're going to get murdered, right? Like that's what God is basically saying. Check yourself because you're going to wreck yourself, right? Like that's what he's saying. So you got to stop and think about these things because God needed to tell Noah these things because right before the flood, right, what caused the whole flood was a bunch of people who were just living however they saw fit. God looked down at the earth and he saw incredible evil, incredible wickedness. It tells us that people were living and doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes, meaning no rules. And let me just tell you, we have a word for that now, and it's anarchy. And anarchy is not good ever, ever. You probably had to read Lord of the Flies when you were a freshman in high school. That is anarchy, okay? Anarchy gets worse than that because those kids were only like 12, right? Who knows what they could accomplish? They were like 13, right? Like, you don't know. It's incredible. Anarchy is horrible. Whenever you just release people into a room and say, hey, just go for it. Like, that's, that's always going to be bad. That's always going to be bad. That's why God decided, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and create the beginnings of a civil government. Checks and balances, laws and regulations in order to protect us. The original design for government was as a protection for us, from us, right? This government is designed to protect us from ourselves. You don't have to look any further than just across the street, okay? Right now, they have big church going on, uh, but besides big church, there's also uh, a nursery. I don't know if you've been over there or if you've ever been to a church or know what a nursery is, but that's where children are taken care of, all right? Hopefully we all know that, all right? So, a nursery, they've got, you know, all these rooms where they put in all these kids, right? Like it's like one-year-olds all the way up to like 10-year-olds. And they're all just in these different rooms. And every single room has a teacher. Multiple teachers, in fact. Because I promise you, as an uncle of a two-year-old and a three-year-old, if you put even, even two-year-olds who you think about as like, they're not even, I don't, they don't do anything, right? They just kind of walk around like spit or whatever. You put two-year-olds in a room by themselves and leave them for an hour, like the room is going to be on fire and they're going to start a fight club. Like there's nothing, <laughs> there's no other solution to that problem. Like you have to have regulations. You have to have something in place to take care of them because they are going to destroy themselves. They will destroy themselves. 
Because we as people are self-destructive. Man, this past Monday, not even a week ago, there's a school in Nevada where a 12-year-old kid took a gun to school and shot a bunch of other people. And he killed a teacher and himself. Just because. 12. Because we as people are self-destructive. Because we as a human race are broken. And we need protection. We need protection from ourselves. So God said, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to start this government. I'm going to give you something to bring justice and order to this world. That's why Paul, all the way forwards in Romans, and what Whitney just read, we see him explaining that we need to all, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He's saying there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For what he does... Not bear the sword, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul's reiterating this idea that look, ultimately, we are obeying government, not just for government's sake. Right? God didn't put government in our world to be a new God. Instead, Paul says, look, you need to obey government because God put it in place, because ultimately, you're not just accountable to government, ultimately, you're accountable to God. Which is why at times, even now in America, we see a conflict between God and government. And when that happens, we as believers are called ultimately to be accountable to God. Recently, there was a, uh, so we have this new healthcare thing, right? Okay, so Obamacare, whatever, or the Affordable Healthcare Act. So that's happening. Already rolled out. And it's affecting, you know, individual citizens, it's affecting businesses, all that great stuff. Well, recently there was a big hubbub, uh, blog entry and some news kind of attention given to Hobby Lobby, which if you're a guy, you know is that horrendous place, right, that exists where your mom takes you and you're there for three hours and there's only so many model planes you can look at and (laughs) you just get really bored, right? That's Hobby Lobby. But for other people, they're like, ah, treasure trove of metal and wood. I don't know. So I don't know what they see in it, even now. But they go to Hobby Lobby, right? Now, Hobby Lobby, in case you didn't know, is a faith-based company, meaning they were started by some Christian owners. It's still privately owned. Uh, They uh, are closed on Sunday, like Chick-fil-A, you know? So they're closed on Sundays. They respect God. They play Christian KSBJ and stuff, like in the room or whatever. And so they're doing all that Christian stuff. Well, uh, they had an issue with the new healthcare act because it would basically uh, force them to provide different types of birth control to their employees that they didn't agree with. Uh, Now they still were willing to, they were providing 18 different types of birth control to their employees. It was covered under their health plan, 18 different types, but they picked out a few. They were like, well, but these, you know, these we think border on abortion. We think that this thing, you know, it's taking a fertilized egg and it's getting rid of it. So we don't want to endorse that because we're a faith-based company. 
Well, the problem arose when they then petitioned the government for an exemption. They said, hey, can we be exempted? Because there's a law in place that's about religious freedom. It says, look, if you, we don't want to force anything on you that makes you compromise your religious practices. So they petitioned for an exemption from the law. The government said, no. So now Hobby Lobby is entering into this big lawsuit where they're suing the government. They're having this big case going off. They want to go all the way to the Supreme Court, all the way to the Supreme Court to argue for their for this case to say, look, we don't want to offer these things. We religiously faith, we disagree with this thing that you're forcing on us. We disagree with this regulation. They're saying, because we're not ultimately accountable to you, government. We're accountable to God. And we believe that this, what you're telling us to do, goes against what God says. Because they recognize that ultimately they are accountable to God. And that will conflict with government, even in America, even now. So what do we do? How do we move into that sphere and interact in, in that realm? Like, how do, what do we do in that place? How do we not get frustrated, right? How does Hobby Lobby not put up some, you know, an email that's like, well, I can't believe it. How do we refrain from, like, going on to Facebook or Twitter and be like, I can't, bless Hobby Lobby, let's go buy knickknacks. Like, the, how, what's to stop us, right? Like, what do we do? Let me tell you, we have a hope. We have a promise that we can hold on to. We don't have to get frustrated. We don't have to yell and scream. We don't have to petition and use pickets because we can have faith in our God who is good, in our God who has promised us that, you know what? This current realm, this current government, it's not permanent. We as Christians believe that we worship the one true God who sees the brokenness of our realm, sees the brokenness of our world. And we believe that our God loved us so much that he wanted to fix that brokenness by sending his son to die for us. We as Christians believe that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that could atone for all of our sin, all of our failure, all of our brokenness. So that if we merely put our faith in him, the fact that he died on that cross and rose again, if I put my faith in that, if I put my trust in that, I know, I'm assured, I have the promise of eternal salvation. That this whole world, it's going to end. It's just going to go away. But yet my soul will carry forth. My soul will go and be with my Father for all of eternity. So let my first challenge to you be, don't get caught up in the yelling and the screaming and the frustrations because we are in a unique position to know that there's something greater after this. That there's a greater government that Christ is going to come establish a new rule, a new heaven, a new earth. He will rule perfectly. We have that hope. So don't let the worries of right now weigh us down. That's why Paul tells us in our big commission at the very end of this passage of verse 5. He gives a two-part charge. He says, remember, you've got to be, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Because he's saying, look, we're, Paul recognized, look, we have a grand future ahead of us. But in the meantime, in the meantime, rather than being worried about following these rules or that and this, what we should really be focused on is our conscience. The sake of our conscience, right? Now, when Paul talks about this conscience, uh, I know that that can bring up a lot of different ideas. Basically, uh, conscience, as Paul is referring to, is sort of an awareness, sort of a knowledge uh, we uh, all kind of know what a personal conscience is, right? That's basically the difference between like 
okay, and no way. All right? That's how I think of it. Some things are okay. Some things are no way. Right? That's, that's your conscience. Our world as a whole, we acknowledge that this exists. We even say uh, that this conscience is created most often through intuition and information. All right, what I mean by that is, let's say I'm walking down the street, I see a blazing fire. Intuition tells me, don't put my hand inside of that fire. Right? Like I can just kind of tell, I can kind of glean, okay, hand doesn't belong in that fire. But let's say I have my sister's Barbie in my hand. I might decide, hey, I'm going to throw this in the fire, though, because that's hilarious. But my parents then tell me, no, don't throw your sister's Barbie in the fire. Otherwise, we're going to throw you in the fire or something like that. That's information, right? Like someone has to tell me a few times, like, hey, that is very bad, right? Intuition, information. When those things come together, we form a conscience. But Christians, we, in fact, believe that our conscience is actually informed by God. That God speaks to us through our conscience. That God has sent his spirit to serve as our helper, to illuminate parts of the world, to show us how to live for him. Right now, sometimes Christians can become calloused to that. Right? If you ignore your conscience over and over and over again, you just build up kind of a defense and you can, you can kind of dull it over time. But for the most part, you hear something, you, you're led by your conscience. We acknowledge that is God most times. God's speaking to us. Inwardly. That's why Paul is saying, look, you've got to be aware of your conscience. Because John 16, he says, look, Christ says, I'm going to send this helper to the world. And when I send this helper to the world, he's going to convict the entire world of sin and righteousness. He's saying on some level, every single person in this entire world, even if you're not a Christian, you have some sort of conscience. There's something, some sort of conviction within you where you recognize certain things are right, certain things are okay, certain things are no way. Bad. We see this not only in ourselves individually, but we also see it collectively. Anytime you have a group of people that get together, they form a collective conscience, right? And that is most clear when you as a group encounter another group, right? What I mean by that is let's say you're in your family, in my family, uh, whenever we did the dishes or whenever we ate dinner, we would immediately do our dishes, put them in the dishwasher, right? That's how the Smith family rolled. Mama Smith said, do those dishes because I ain't doing them. I'm going to throw you in the fire, right? Like, that's, that was my life. And so we would do that, right? But whenever I went to my friend's house, when I went to my friend Ben, his house, we would, like, eat dinner, and I would start to, like, take my dish and, you know, wash it off and rinse it and scrub it and put it in the dishwasher. And his mom would be like, oh, don't worry about it. You don't got to do that. I was like, what? Like, what is this land of milk and honey? What are you, what are you talking about? Like, I don't have to do my dishes. She's like, oh, no, I'll get them later. Just put it next to the sink. I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, what is going on? And it was, there were so many things like that between our two families where we, you know, for example, we would always call other parents by their name, like Mr. Johnson or like, you know, Mrs. I can't think of names. Bradbury. Mm, okay. <laughs> Mrs. Bradbury. <laughs> That's who you are, right? But when I went to my friend Ben's house, they would call my parents, rather than Mr. and Mrs. Smith, they would call my parents, oh, hey, Murphy, hey, Kathy, which I was like, what are you, what are you doing, right? Because I was like six. I barely even registered that my parents had first names. I would never call them by that. But in their household, man, they just had a different rule where they said, no, it's, it's fine. You want to call people by, call parents by their first names? Go for it, right? And whenever that would happen, it would just amplify, it would clarify what our collective conscience was. It's not that one was right or wrong. It was just on our own collective consciences, they differed. 
And my family's was much, ev- much more evident in that. You see that at A&M. You go to A&M, you can walk on some grass, but if you walk on the grass near the MSC, it's like, and everyone freaks out. You can walk under lots and lots of trees at A&M, but God forbid <laughs> you walk under that century tree by yourself because otherwise you're doomed for singleness, whatever, right? In fact, my now wife and I, when we were dating at the beginning of college, we would go on walks around campus, right? Because I'm romantic. And so we would walk and look at things in the night sky. And it came out about a year later, when we weren't living on campus anymore, that she would purposefully steer us away from the century tree (laughs) so that we would not arm in arm walk under it just in case, just in case things weren't going to work out. She didn't want to make the century tree a liar. And we're married now, though, so I win, all right? But uh, we, we had these traditions, right? We have this collective conscience, these things that we create that are merely just kind of an inward leading where you're just like, well, that doesn't, ah, that doesn't quite seem right, right? You can't really nev- necessarily give a perfect 100% objective argument for it. You have something within you. That's why as a collective whole, as a nation, look even bigger. Our nation, we have a national conscience, We as a nation have certain ideas and pieces that we've created. We have laws that we've created solely because they are part of our national conscience. We have seatbelts, right? Those didn't exist until like the 70s. We have seatbelts. Now, we can make arguments for, well, it's safer and this and this. Well, yes, but, you know, there's lots of other countries that don't have seatbelt laws. So what do you, you know, what do you do with that? Well, Well, they just don't, well... They don't want to be safe? Well, no, that doesn't make sense. No, like instead there's, there's some sort of national, con- there's something else subjective. You're like, well, that doesn't quite feel right. We have uh, laws against public nudity, right? Where we're like, hey, nuh-uh, like <laughs> keep that at home, <laughs> away from here, right? Some beaches, eh, but you know, I'm not here, right? Like, don't do it. And, but then you look at other countries, right? They have all kinds of stuff <laughs> happening, right? And so you're like, well, what's, what's going on? It's, it's national conscience. We have littering. If I told you right now, hey, you should go outside and just like dump, just dump a bunch of like fast food wrappers all over the street. Do it, right? You would be like, eh, I don't want to, right? Why? Well, there's just something, there's something inside of you that says, oh, I don't want to, I don't think like that's right. There's some sort of conscience. There's something that our nation as a whole said, no littering. Even though other countries, again, like they're just like, whoop, done with that biscuit. I don't know. And they just throw stuff. They're just like littering all the time. Oh, good, good magazine, plop, right? That's, that's how they live, and they don't even think about it because it's not within their national conscience. That's why you look at our nation as a whole, you see things like slavery that we acknowledge, that we had, oh, yeah, this is, this is fine, you know, whatever, and we had it for so long, almost 100 years as a nation until someone said, you know what? This doesn't seem quite right. And it was a matter of conscience, where then people were saying, yeah, you know what, I, I don't feel right. Like, this is, this is, I'm convicted on this. Like, this doesn't seem to be a right thing. There's other countries in the world that have slavery right now, legalized. What do we say? We say, well, that's, that's wrong. They shouldn't do that. Why? Well, because no one should own another person. Why? It's conscience. That's why we don't allow child pornography. Other countries in the world, totally fine. Here in America, they're like, no, no, no. Why? Well, because kids aren't, well, uh. There's a national conscience. There's this idea that the Spirit has moved in our hearts that has changed us. That's why you even see a lot of these laws changing from state to state. We as a nation can't even agree on a lot of them. You look at abortion. 
You look where there have been so many cases. 55 million abortions since 1973. 55 million abortions in 40 years. But if you have your baby, if you kill it then, like, uh uh-uh, you can't do that. In fact, not only can you not kill a baby after it's born, because they're like, well, that's murder. If you're not the mom, you can be convicted. A guy just recently, John Weldon, just got convicted of this, of murdering a baby who was six weeks along inside his mom. He tricked tricked the mom into taking uh, some anti-conception, basically an abortion pill. Tricked her into taking it. And so he got charged with murder. Because in 2004, we created the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, which says it is unlawful to kill any baby growing inside of any mom, unless you're the mom, which doesn't really make sense. Because we as a nation have a conscience. And what's sad is that slowly we're seeing, as believers, we see our national conscience just fall a little bit lower and a little bit lower and a little bit lower. So what do we do? What do we do about that? How do we affect our national conscience? Because the truth is that when we started out, when our nation started, man, we started with a sense of accountability to God. Our national conscience was informed by this idea of a creator. Not everyone was a Christian. I'm definitely not saying that. Not everyone uh, believed in one God. Not everyone believed in the Bible. Like, there's tons of discrepancies. But on the whole, our founding fathers, like, the reason our nation started, our national conscience began informed by an accountability to God. That's why you see in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. By who? By this creator. This creator has given us rights of uh, life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. There's some sort of creator out there who has given us these things that has created all men equal. That's why you see that quoted in Gettysburg Address when Lincoln's saying, hey, look, we need to really quit with like, owning people. That is horrendous. What does he quote? Declaration of Independence. It says, look, there's this creator that created all men equal. There's some sort of God. That's why we saw in the 50s when everyone was really freaked out about communists. They're like, well, what are we going to do? How do we differentiate ourselves from communism? So, well, we have this God thing in our history that kind of made sense. And they're like, okay, let's do that. So they put God into our pledge. One nation under God, 1950s. Same around, around the exact same time, 1956. The 84th Congress, meaning just like all Congress had to meet together. All of them had to vote almost unanimously to then change an act of Congress to give us a national motto. You know what our national motto is? In God we trust. It's our national motto. It's on all of our coinage. It's been on our coins since the Civil War. But it's been our national motto since 1956. In God we trust. But yet now, if you try to talk about God, try to bring him up, if you try to vote based on your belief in God, people crucify you. And it started with JFK. When he got elected, everyone was really freaking out because they were like, well, oh my gosh, like he's a Catholic. Like, does that mean that he's going to obey the Pope? And like, does that mean he can't be? So it, it was weird. But they, he basically had to like calm everyone's fears. And in doing so, he gave this charge that has now trickled down to basically all Americans. He says, I believe in a president whose religious views are his own private affair, neither imposed on him neither imposed by him upon the nation or imposed by the nation upon him as a condition to holding that office. 
He says, if you are religious, you have faith, you've got to keep it right in here. Don't let that come out in, in your job. That's why it goes on. He said that he would make decisions in accordance with what my conscience tells me to be in the national interest and without regard to outside religious pressure or dictates. What? So what we see is JFK setting this bar, setting this precedent that a lot of people had been thinking at the time of, look, I have a conscience and there's things going on in there, but you know what? That's not from God. I'm going to obey my conscience is informed by whatever I think because I'm going to think about it without regard to outside religious pressure or dictates. If you're a Christian and you read that, you're like, that makes absolutely no sense. That doesn't work. If God's informing our conscience, how can you obey your conscience without regarding your religion? And we've seen this start up in the presidency and then trickle down to all of politics, all of our jobs, where we go to work or we go to the voting booth and we're told, you know what? Don't vote based on your faith. How dare you? We're all called to be religious, or we're all called to vote as atheists, to work as atheists, to speak as if we're atheists, keeping religion as our own private affair. But as Christians, if we're called to love God and love people, the truth is that this is not loving. The truth is that if we really want to love them in this sphere of government, we've got to keep God front and center. That's why Pastor out in Georgia said, the most sensitive thing we can do for people who don't believe in God is to keep him in the center of the conversation because it's his presence and our accountability to him that gives us the leverage to create a system where those who, have, who choose not to believe will always have the freedom to do so. Andy Stanley's just saying, look, you've got to follow God. You've got to keep him front and center because his presence, our accountability to him is what allows us to disagree. It's what allows us to say that all men are created equal. It's what allows us to say that all men should be free. That's what allows us to say that babies shouldn't get murdered. It's our accountability to God. So when we're speaking, when we're voting, we need to keep that front and center. That's why as we move out and we're trying to engage in this realm, we need to use our vote. We need to use our voice to bring God back into the conversation. We need to go out and we need to vote according to our conscience. One of the biggest lies that I can't believe has become so prevalent is people saying, look, as a Christian, you go out and you vote. You can't push your views on someone else. How dare you? How dare you try to take your views on marriage and force that on other people? But the truth is, is that all people vote according to their conscience. Everyone does. So as Christians, we should be allowed to vote according to our conscience, which happens to also be informed by God, which happens to be informed by God's word. So when I go and vote, the loving thing for me to do isn't to go into that voting booth as an atheist and pretend I don't believe in anything. The most loving thing I can do is go in and say, no, God knows what's best. God has put things in place for our good. I'm going to fight for those things. I'm going to bring those things front and center. That's why we need to use our voice to go out and talk about these things, to not be afraid to bring up the fact that God is creator, that God is good, even in government spheres. This is why we have things like our summer projects where we go to places and we share God where God has completely been taken out of the equation, taken out of the conversation. We say, no, we're going to go back to those places and we're going to bring God back into the conversation. We're going to do that overseas. We're going to do that here. And we're going to do that with love. Right, we're not going to yell and rant. It's going to be loving, kind, gracious.
This is why we should be not only using our voice to preach and proclaim these things, we use our voice to pray. This is why we should be praying for our nation, for our leaders, for our general direction, for our national conscience. We should pray for those things. Ask God to move. We should be moving and praying and talking to God using our voice in that way. That's why we have November 8th. We have a prayer walk that our prayer team organized. It's awesome. I love it. November 8th, 7 o'clock, meeting up on campus. So just go pray. Pray specifically for the students here at A&M. Pray for our town. Pray for our nation. We should do that. We should do that more. We should use our voice to ask God to come back, not only into the conversation as we communicate and interact, but also we should be praying to God, echoing Jesus himself prayed that the world would end. You see, over and over again in the Gospels, when Jesus prayed, he said, God, let you come and do away with this. God, let this be your time. Let there be a new earth, a new creation. We should be praying for Christ's return. If we truly have that hope, if we truly believe that's where this world is going, let's pray. Ask God, bring it. Bring it. Only when we are effectively using our votes and our voices, that's when we're truly living as Christians are called to live in government. So as we sing one more song, as we just do a little bit more worship, I would just encourage you, ask the Lord, Ask him to show you where can you kind of bring these pieces to bear. Where can you use these tools? Maybe it's where you, maybe you take a position, right? Maybe you go into student government or maybe you go into national government. I don't know. Maybe you do and you go and you actually live, you work in that sphere. That's awesome. Or maybe you ask God, look, how, where am I supposed to go? How do I do this? And maybe it's just you need to go and join this one group or you need to go speak on their, their behalf or whatever. You need to go volunteer at that agency or that political activist, whatever. Ask the Lord, how can you be using your vote? How can you be using your voice, your prayers to bring change, to create something new? So let's pray. Lord, we are just grateful that you have put us in a position where we have so much opportunity to bring change. God, we just ask that you would guide us, that, God, you would show us where we need to create that change, God, that you would show us where we need to use these tools that you've given us. If you would, take a moment just right now. Ask the Lord, where are you called to use your voice? What can you be praying for? Where do you need to be more bold in proclaiming the name of God? even when other people tell you it's not right.